Welcome to Help from Future Self. Howdy, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gru, and I am your Keyforge friend, and I am joined by two other people who are also your Keyforge friends as well as mine. We've got SC Steel. Hey, hey. And Boulevard Blake. Yo, what's going on? Not too much. Thank you so much for taking care of the podcast last week. Whilst I was in the midst of moving, it feels very good to be in my new place. And uh, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I've started to unpack and organize all my Keyforge stuff, which has got me very much in the mood to talk a little bit about Keyforge. And uh, I believe it was you, Sydney, who came up with the premise for this week's episode, which is we're going to be talking a little bit about one of the old school, one of the venerable variants of Keyforge, one that we all have some experience with. It's adaptive. I'm really excited about this one. I needed to do quite a bit of a refresher for this week's ABR game because that was the form, the variant this week. And I, I needed to make sure that I totally understood what I was getting into before I picked my deck for it. So a quick refresher for those of you who maybe haven't played Adaptive in a while or maybe have never played Adaptive. The way it works is that it's a best of three. First game, you play your own deck. Second game, you play your opponent's deck. And assuming it goes to a third game, then there is chain bidding based on which deck you think is the most powerful. And I wanted to read something from the official formats and variants document that Fantasy Flight Games put out about the various different uh, formats and variants of Keyforge, including all the official ones that they had come up with up to this time. And it's the philosophy of adaptive, which is chains are a balancing mechanic built into the base rules of Keyforge. They can be utilized to allow two decks with a large difference in strength to play at roughly even footing. This helps to emphasize the skill of the player over the strength of an individual deck and allows each player the chance to do well with whatever deck they happen to use. But that's only scratching the surface about what makes Adaptive an interesting format, I think. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think the cornerstone of Adaptive is deck selection. And I know Sydney is going to go into great detail about this because uh, I shall not, because I have determined I am terrible at selecting decks for Adaptive. <laughs> I have like the, it's like easily my worst format in terms of deck selection. I always do terribly by choosing a deck that just doesn't cut the mustard. And I went with a different approach this, this past week in ABR and it didn't fare me any better. So I feel pretty competent about playing someone else's deck. I feel very competent about bidding chains and playing with chains. But unfortunately, I'm just terrible at selecting decks. Like I sometimes don't even get there because I'm just ugh, I'm I'm over it. I hate it. Sydney, I need help. <laughs> well, I actually have to thank the um my ABR team because we had quite an intellectual discussion on the topic. We have a lot of people with a lot of different strategies and opinions that I absolutely loved it. But one of the, the best things about um, being on the same ABR team as I or having the same captain as uh, I had last season was he had his same opinions. And those are what I used to the letter to pick my deck last season. And I lost last season and I it came down to the wire this season. And I used a different strategy this season. So I at least got to try a different one out. But there's actually a lot of thought that can go into this deck. So just just to give me a heads up, how did you pick your deck this season? 
So this time I went for something that is like if you look like if you saw my deck, you know, because in ABR you can see each other's deck, there's the stats are kind of gonna be nothing to write home about in some areas. So it made people go, oh. And then it's a very complex deck in terms of there's a lot of room for error. It's a Dark Tidings deck, so sequencing was key. And it had two key cheats and one you could recur off multiple times. But there is a variance to the deck, which is, I think, its greatest downfall in my side. Because in my turn, if the variance was very poor for me, which it was, and then when my opponent plays it, has a much stronger variance, then it has like a chance to high roll. And I think that was my mistake. But I chose something that was complicated to play and had lots of room for error in terms of maximizing the potential of what it could do. I, I think that that's an interesting uh, uh, sort of segue into one of the various topics that has to do with adaptive, and especially when it has to do with deck selection is obviously like the temptation is always to bring heat, but oftentimes I find with adaptive it's, it's, it's heat, but it has to be heat that only you specifically understand from having played the deck and knowing the deck really well and heat that is very difficult for other people to mess up while playing it. So, you know, in, in any number of turns, that have had adaptive elements to them, uh, you know, either auction or, or or other variants, short adaptive and so on and so forth. We've seen lots of cases where you have to really see and absorb how your opponent plays the deck and then make the snap decision in the moment of bidding of, do I think I can replicate what they did or is this too complex for me? Do I not actually understand the combos? Do I not actually understand what the deck wants to do? And I'm better off going with my own deck. That's kind of one of the interesting things I think about the format. I went with a very similar strategy. I actually took a deck that had quite a bit of heat to it, but it was also something where it had some really, really big uh, pitfalls. It had some very big weaknesses that I knew how I would be able to um, make use of. So if it were to high roll, which it was absolutely capable of, then I knew how I would have to get out of those situations. And it, it actually came with, um, a, a screaming cave and three control the weeks. So basically I knew that if there was a control the week lockout possibility, I needed to vary my ability to get houses out there and also just go so quickly onto outboarding them because the deck didn't have a lot of creatures that no matter what they called, I would have the ability to reap and control the board. So I went with a deck that, um, well, the discussions that we had beforehand included a lot of tips and strategies about how well you have to know your deck, but also what kind of weird things your deck should have in it. So no straightforward deck was something that anyone suggested. So if you have a really straightforward deck, it's super easy for the opponent to figure out how to play it. But it's also harder to bid chains on at the end because the weirder your deck, the more that you know how well that variance is going to be. See, I was... um practicing with someone on my team es rainbow wolf i believe is who it was and he had a very interesting philosophy he brought a good deck it was very good but what he understood about his deck and planned that it could go to chains was he knew the breaking point of the deck when it came to chains so when it got to that point 
he knew that, okay, if you take my deck past this point, it's going to severely struggle unless you get a crazy high roll. So he played with the understanding that he was willing to give up his deck no matter what, provided that the chain threshold was not met. And if it was over the chain threshold, then he knew that the deck was going to struggle. And I thought understanding your deck's chain threshold is a really interesting um, way of approaching adaptive and to test that out it's it's not as easily testable as anything else of just like choosing a deck and playing a deck because you'd have to actually set up chain scenarios where you get to see at what point does this deck suddenly consistently start breaking down under what weight of chain and i thought that was a really interesting approach and i and i didn't take it to heart the same way because i just didn't have the capability of doing that within the time frame but the fact that that was known was a was a really interesting approach for me to see I think that that's also super fascinating because it's a defense against one of the tried and true adaptive strategies, which is trying to make your opponent overpay for their own deck or for the deck that they want. I mean, there's lots of cases where I actually don't want to play my opponent's deck, but I will actually bid on it in the adaptive portion to force my opponent to play under chains. And in cases where I feel like perhaps my deck is a little more... um, not to the taste of the opposite player, it didn't seem like they were comfortable playing it or whatever else, or their deck was just way stronger or they felt more confident with it, I would try and sort of, you know, force them to play under chains. And the only real defense against that is exactly what you said, getting used to playing your deck under chains, understanding where the break point is with chains and knowing how much you could conceivably bid up to with the deck and still be able to play it effectively. That's really interesting. I'll never forget about uh, when our friend Ryan from Seattle, he has the story. He always said when at our prime, we had adaptive and he ended up losing the second game. So the opponents or he won the second game and the, and so his deck wasn't being bid on, but his opponent's deck and he knew under no circumstances, he wanted to play that deck. Cause he knew his deck was better and it was just a fluke. So he literally, when they said zero, he was like, take it for zero. He wanted not even the slightest risk of having to take the deck because he wow. knew that his deck was better. And I find that always such an interesting story. It's like a Keyforge memory I have like ingrained in me because I thought that was so fascinating to not even, you, you knew your deck was better and it was just a variance luck. So you had no like reservation about saying, take yours and well, let's, let's rematch because I know I'll win this time. Yeah, the other great thing about that too is it's such a power move psychologically. Like it yeah. is one of those things where just being able to say that, it puts your opponent on the back foot slightly because it makes them start to contemplate why why did they even, why are we even, all right, you know, going into it. And it does throw your opponent off somewhat, which is actually one of the things that I think is interesting about Adaptive is it's a game you can play um, with your opponent that is very meta. It's not within the actual game of Keyforge. It's not even within the actual rules of how you bid on a deck in Adaptive. How long do you take to say? Do you immediately jump to seven chains or do you force your opponent to go up by increments? Is it a death by a thousand cuts or do you just try and wallop them right away with, you know, 10 chains? You know, or, uh, or trying to trick them into to building up that way themselves. There's all kinds of little psychological things you can do in adaptive that makes it an interesting format. Yeah, that's what caught me up when it came down to the bidding of the chains 
in in the game that I played, we we ended up. I, I brought the losing deck, and um, when it came down to bidding chains, I knew that my opponent had the better deck. But also, it was a dark tidings deck, which was my biggest fear in this format because chains and dark tidings go well, re- really, really well together. So I actually bid up to one chain above where I was comfortable, like one chain more than I was willing to go because I thought he would bid one more than me to take his deck. And I will say the game actually was really, really close. Like once his deck got past those chains and he didn't take the tide at any point, so I didn't have to increase the the chains on my side during the game i i almost had it it was it wasn't that far out of reach but i bid one too many chains because i was hoping he would take it back that mind game is one big aspect of adaptive hundred mm, percent yeah i i like that i like the fact that it adds like a real genuine like a game of chance aspect to the meta game um, the idea that uh, part of poker is, of course, you know, trying to anticipate whether or not your opponent is is bluffing or not. And although by the time you get to the stage of bidding in a game of adaptive, you have a good understanding of what you're actually bidding on. It's the whether or not you can convince your opponent that your bet is a genuine bet based on your level of confidence or whether you're trying to bait them into something else. And that's a thing I love to see because it is not something that is actually part of the rules. It is literally just something that has, it's it's bluffing, it's poker face, it's all those aspects. And those are all things that I find very like interesting and also add like a great deal of flavor to the game. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a big fan of, of the like a poker strategy where you do the same thing every time. So it's never a tell type of thing. And so for me, when it goes to chains, I will always bid six chains off the hop. Like when it's my opportunity to go up, if the person goes zero, I go six every time. And I don't hesitate doing it. I always do it right away. Like as soon as they say zero, I go six like that, like right away because, and I never switch it. And I do the same way. So you can't tell what I'm doing, but I want to see how my opponent reacts to being at that threshold of going into minus two cards by taking it at seven or giving it to me at six. Because most likely if the deck won at that point, it, it can handle a few chains. And there's obviously the odd time when I don't do it, but it's like pretty much I would say 90% of the time to the point where in uh, on my team, we have Joker on my team and he was like, did you do the thing where you bid six chains right away? Because <laughs> he knows that I, I did that to him in, in a prime and it's it's just like my go-to move and I'm going to, I'd rather be known for it and do it because then you don't know what I'm actually thinking. Are either of you two ever doing any mental math in your head thinking about like what would cause a deck to earn a certain amount of chains or in, in, um, our team discussion, one of the things available is somebody provided a mathematical calculation that we could use like if we wanted to like come up with a, a predetermined amount of chains that we were willing to bid, but that isn't something like I do it entirely by feel. I do it by I think I can win with this many chains or I think if, especially like if I'm bidding on their deck, they'll take it away from me and of course I lost, lost me the match, but um, are either of you two ever doing any mental math? I gotta say, I, I genuinely don't. Um, I, 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 as much as I enjoy the format, my thinking about it is very, very basic. And it is the, am I trying to get my opponent to take this for a lot of chains? 
or am I willing to take a lot of chains to take this deck? And almost never is a deck so good that I'm willing to play it at like 10 chains, especially if it's not mine. Um, I think most decks, you know, especially in a, a, a when you're going to like a, a third game, there's potential of it going to time. There's potential that the game won't even finish properly. Uh, that 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 the chain suddenly becomes such a burden that more often than not, I'm literally not thinking about performance. I'm thinking about just the raw number. What's the raw number I'm willing to take, or what is the raw number I'm trying to get my opponent to go to? Um, and oftentimes that number for myself is like you know seven chains tops. Yeah, for me personally, I do have. I wouldn't say it's like a mental sort of calculation. It's more of an observation during the first two games. I kind of keep an eye on the draw pile, how long we are into the game, and just see how the deck's moving. And then when I play it, same sort of thing. Are there reasons to hold cards in the deck, which means I'm chaining myself? Uh, like, for example, in the matchup, is that something that's important? And generally, if there's logos in the deck, I'm... I'm feeling better about it because usually Logos has some good ways to archive, draw, cycle, all those things that allow you to not really feel the weight of chains. Like I feel daughters and Zenzies really help and mothers obviously uh, really help add to the anti-chain kind of philosophy. Like, okay, I have chains, who cares type of sort of feeling that it has. And it's not a specific mathematical calculation. But I'm, I'm trying to be observant of how fast is my opponent going through their deck compared to me going through my deck. And then when I'm playing it, am I having a similar experience? Have either of you two ever thrown a game? Like, not as in, like, like thrown a match, but when the second game comes down to, or the first game, like, comes down to the fact that uh, their deck is winning incredibly, and uh, you, you just don't want them to see how you're playing your deck or, or get any information from from your deck before you go into the second game. Have either of you two ever um, just ended a game and, and conceded to the second? I did that this week. Oh. <laughs> it was it was like very out of reach. It wasn't like slightly like I could have played it out, but it was like I was getting just stomped, like no keys forged, stomped. So I was like, okay, there's no point continuing. I've I don't have my pieces. Uh, it's it's a literally there's no point it was like maybe playing one more turn it wasn't like halfway through a game it was maybe a turn or two less would have been seen type of thing that's yeah, awesome I, mean, I, I I'd never Cindy, heard of anybody actually like, doing it your your gasp of disbelief was uh, I was like oh my goodness is Sydney judging me right now is that like bad <laughs> sportsmanship or something you're just that mythical player who's actually <laughs> done that strategy in real life, it's harder, like at a prime, but in, in like something that has less stakes, it's um, like the ABR where it's a long, there's more of a marathon than a sprint. I, I don't mind doing it and stuff like that, but in a prime, I would not do it. So what about bringing a bad deck? Like that's a strategy that our team discussed that we, we decided not to go with across the board, but it is also a strategy to bring like a really bonkers, like reversal level deck so that you you just definitely blow the first game and then the second game you beat them with their deck and then it just goes to the third game real quick. I mean, the the problem I find with that strategy is that as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, there's way more average decks than there are truly bad decks. And even an average deck has a chance to high roll. 
So there's no guarantee that those first two games are ever going to go the way unless you have a truly terrible deck. And we've all played a few truly terrible decks there. <laughs> but even the truly terrible deck will sometimes have its day. And I really don't like the idea of, you know, all right, I bombed the first game, hand my deck confidently over to my opponent thinking, oh, man, I'm going to stomp them with their own deck. And then because I don't understand how their deck works and because my bad deck happened to get a couple of really good hands in it uh, off the first set, suddenly I've lost the round because, well, I was overconfident in the badness of my deck. I can't do it. I can't run with it. Yeah, I've never tried. It's something I, just like you, I don't have the confidence to do. I mean, I have some pretty bad decks, but I've, I've brought most of my bad decks to actual reversals and, and have, in fact, lost to them before. So it's, it's not something I'm ever confident enough to do. I will be doing it next adaptive. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's it's my next strategy. Keep doing it. Yeah, I've, I haven't done it before. I'm, I'm the only thing that I'm debating is if you know your deck is not great and not going to win the first match. At what point do you concede to show even less information for your opponents? So you guarantee the win with their deck against yours. I, I mean, if you, if it's your strategy, strategy going in, you concede before you draw your first hand. That is kind of wild. Ooh, Sydney, giving me ideas over here. <laughs> oh man, do I see a format being born right now? We could call it like kamikaze or suicide adaptive or some other some other uh, variation thereof. I love it. I mean, if you're good at sealed, it's actually because what you're getting is you're getting the deck that they brought. So yes, they might be a little familiar with it, but if you can look at a deck list and and put a good game together, especially if you've brought such a bad deck that you you think it'll lose, that's that's a strategy. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited for it. I'm I I really want to try it out. I have a deck that's not bad, but. I don't know. I want to try it out nonetheless. So I, I think one of the interesting things about adaptive that we've discussed here today, and I guess the, the big takeaway would be, is that adaptive has so many different ways to play it. And the consideration of how adaptive gets played is oftentimes based around how you play as a player. Are you the kind of person who is very confident with a more complex deck? Are you the kind of person who likes to play psychological games? Or are you the kind of person who just wants to play a straightforward game of Keyforge and doesn't care that much about bidding chains and will always sort of go with the flow uh, when you get to that stage, if in fact you do get to that stage. And exploring how you play that probably will tell you something about yourself as a Keyforge player. I love it. That is definitely a, a psychological test. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I, th I think it can vary. I mean, until I have success at Adaptive, it will always vary. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called Help from Future Self. Blake, have you got one for us this week? I do, yes. So this one is a, a open thought. One of my key thoughts, you might say. Shout out to my YouTube series, LOL. <laughs> um, so basically, I've just been thinking about this. I have this deck. So I have a few decks I've sleeved in specific art that you can get from vault tours you know it has like a a series of images that can be similar to a play map but they're on sleeves you've probably all seen them and you've also had them either in your possession or inquired why do the cards not fit properly in here you know things like that and i have one that i chose this deck because it happened to have three of the images on there or two of the three and so i thought it'd be cool and i'm playing this deck i'm looking at this deck and all the pieces in this deck individually look amazing 
But then when I go to the play the deck, it just doesn't come out and it just constantly loses and I don't get it. And to demonstrate my point, I'm going to read some cards on here and you'll go, yeah, those sound good. Like Library Axis, Phase Shift, Battle Fleet, mm. Key Abduction, Bait and Switch, Treasure mm. Map. You know what I mean? Like these are these are like classic cards that are in a deck that you're like, this is awesome. Like library access into a phase shift into a battle fleet at the end. Like that seems fun, right? So I'm I'm trying to figure out this deck just doesn't win. Like I cannot win with it. I'm 0 and 5 trying to test it out. And I'm wondering at what point do you give up on a deck? Do you just determine no matter how good everything looks, you are just like, you know what? It just isn't meant to be. Or do you keep going with it and trying to crack the puzzle and figure out the key pieces of which it works. Like I'm just kind of throwing us out there for everyone because I wonder, do I give up on this deck right now or do I keep going and see if something shifts as I play it more and discover a certain sequencing that I'm maybe not doing or knowing that I need to do these sort of things first? Because I always wonder about that. That's real deep. You can find us, of course, on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible on Twitter. Uh, where can they find you, Sydney? I am SC Steel on TCO and Discord. And I wanted to do a quick shout out to Arlie, my opponent this week, who is a listener of Help from Future Self. Amazing. Blake, where can they find you? What do you got going on? You can find me at Boulevard Blake on Twitter. That's a BLVD Blake on Twitter. Same on YouTube. Where I got lots of new content coming out. I'm currently in the thralls of a new game called Spirit Duels, where I'm one of the lead playtesters, and uh, I'm getting really into it. It's a fun dice game with like a Pokemon aspect, so I'm really enjoying it. And if you're uh, interested in playing sort of like a Destiny game, but with like a Pokemon overlay sort of idea, uh, hit me up and I'll uh, put you in touch with getting to try it out. All right. We'll be back again with you next week. Until then... Stay fortunate.